Okay, good morning, everyone. <coughs> so, as, uh, as was mentioned, Pastor Jeff is gone, and I believe I'm the last uh, fill-in speaker while he's gone, so you'll get, uh, you'll get him back, uh, you'll get him back next week. Uh, so why don't we just open in prayer uh, before we proceed into the message. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to gather here in your name, in your house. Lord, we just pray that as we evaluate your word and your truth, that your spirit would just open up our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts to, uh, to what your word has to say to us today. We just thank you for all these things, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, today... It would come to no surprise to any of you that we live in a bit of an era of both fake news as well as fake truth. So what, uh, what I felt called to do as Jeff has been working through Ephesians is to look at a bit of um, what, is, what is truth. So we're going to be looking today at John 1. And part of what we're going to be doing is, is a bit of a science experiment, I suppose, on what the Word of God is. And just a quick show of hands... How many people enjoyed high school? Enjoyed, not the social aspect, but like the learning aspect. Okay, now I know what my crowd's gonna be like this morning. All right, what we're gonna be doing today is probably something different than maybe what you've, uh, what you've seen or done in the past. What we're gonna be doing is a bit of a, a look at the book of John through an apologetics viewpoint. If you know what apologetics is, um, this isn't going to be basically banging heads with someone and, and arguing out. What we're going to be looking at is, what does the Word of God say? And can we trust it? Can we believe it? So as I mentioned, the high school part, what we're going to be doing is, we'll be kind of taking a look at uh, almost like language studies as well as physics and philosophy. So just a quick intro, the first uh, four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, those are the Gospels. The first three are synoptic. So if you know the Greek, uh, sin means together, optic means see. So you see them together, essentially a, uh, a collection of chronological events. John's Gospel, his good news, is slightly different than that. Um, what he focuses on is Jesus as the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. And he basically records a whole series of Jesus' statements and miracles and events that back up his claims to deity. So his book is arranged thematically. Did Brad come back? I think Brad came back. Um, so his book is arranged thematically, and his entire purpose is summed up in John 20, verse 31, which states, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. So with that as the background, most theologians and scholars understand and, and accept that this was written by the disciple, the Apostle John, uh, somewhere between 85 and 95 AD. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's, uh, let's have a look at this good news that he wanted to share, and he had to start somewhere. So where does he start? So if you have a Bible, you can follow along, and if you don't and you want one, I'm sure the ushers can pass you out one. We'll be flipping back and forth through a lot of Scripture, so it's uh, good to keep tabs and, and actually have your eyes see what we're going through. So, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, 
this right here, uh, if you know your Bibles well, is, is different. So this goes back before Jesus' baptism, which is where Mark starts, and it goes back before Herod is in Zacharias, that's where Luke starts, and it goes back before Abraham, that's where Matthew starts. This goes back to the beginning. So if you're inquisitive, um, you probably look at this and say, what is the beginning? Or in this case, what, what is a beginning? Well, the Bible interprets the Bible, so we'll allow that to shed some light on what this beginning is. Genesis 1.1 tells us what that is. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the bookend to the creation story is found in Genesis 2.4. Says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, now that we know what John was referring to, what this beginning was, um, this is the creation of the heavens and the earth. Up on the screen, you'll see there's a Greek interlinear of John 1 1. Essentially, what that is, is that just provides uh, character by character, word by word translation from Greek into English. It's important to note the words and the structure that are contained up there. Hey, Brad. So, so, John simply states the word was in the beginning, it wasn't created, it was already in existence. Okay, so if you could say that another way, it existed prior to, right? You could say it another way, it was eternal. And you wonder how, how you make that connection. The connection is made because time began upon the creation of the universe. Time is based on planetary movement. So, now that we know what the beginning was, the next word we're going to look at is the word. So who is this word? John uses logos. So we can skip ahead a few verses, we can cheat a bit. John tells us in verse 14 who this Logos is. The Logos, so he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And if you remember what we mentioned in uh, chapter 20, verse 31, it says, but these words are written, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So what John is doing right here is stating in the first verse of his book that he's going to be building a case that Jesus is God and he's going to spend the rest of his gospel providing the evidence for that. So now that we've established that the word Logos is Jesus, let's read the remainder of verses uh, 2 through 3. It says, He, the Logos, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So this is totally in harmony with Genesis 1.1. In Genesis 1.1, we read that um, in the beginning, God, right? The word used for God is Elohim, which is the plural form of God. You see one verse later in Genesis 1.2 that the spirit of Elohim, or God, is also present as well. So in the first two verses of Genesis, you see that there is a spirit of God and a plural form of God. So when we read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, alongside John 1, 1 to 3, which we just did, and we marry that together with Colossians 1, 15 to 18, we see for certain that all of creation was made by him, by the word, by the Logos. That's Jesus. 
So there's two words that describe God in John 1.1, and you can see them up there on the screen. Two words are theos and theon, and it's important that you recognize why that is. To some, it may look like a mistake. It's been twisted by some individuals and cults over the years to bring about destructive heresies. Essentially, what we have here is, um, if you go to the next slide, both words, here's a description, both words mean God equally. So the root of the word God is theo. In English, word order within a sentence informs the readers which words are the subject and what is the direct object. This is not so with Greek. The clues that we need to figure it out are called case endings. So what you have is the ending sigma, or the letter S, so theos, within a sentence is the subject, and the ending nu, or n, shows that theon, within a sentence, is the direct object. So in summary, theos is the subject, and theon is the direct object. So is Jesus the logos, the word, is he God? Yes, yes he is. That's the connection that John is making. And it's the same assertion that Jesus himself made in John 10, 30 to 32, where he said, I and the Father are one. And if you remember that story, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, for which of these miracles do you stone me for? And they said, not for the miracles, but because you claim to be one with God. So next we're going to look at Papyrus 75, which is one of the original uh, ancient manuscripts of John 1, still in existence to this day. It's dated back to about 175 to 225 AD. And you'll see another one that's uh, fairly similar. It's Papyrus 66. What I've done is I've put a Greek interlinear underneath that first verse so that you can see with your own eyes for yourselves that you have in your hands a Bible that has the exact same words, the exact same characters that the early church had. So you can also see with your own eyes that it states very clearly, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's important to show that this does not say a God. It does not say the Word is a God. The Jehovah's Witnesses have translated it to say a God, but that's, that's not accurate, that's not true. And it's something to remember that it's, it's important that no matter how much truth you have, you cannot make an unbeliever believe. Right? That's the job of the Holy Spirit, to make unbelievers believe and to open their hearts and their minds. Your job is just to live out your faith in front of an unbelieving world and proclaim the truth and good news of Jesus Christ. So we've evaluated this morning the beginning, we've evaluated the Word as being God and that all things are made through Him. We've done a bit of a micro-analysis on the first few verses of John. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at a macro view or a, a wide view or a long view. So John offers us one account of how the heavens and the earth, how the universe in general came into being. But it's important to note that this is only one account. This is the account that God gave to Moses. There are many other accounts that have come down throughout ages gone by, 
And man has created many different ideas and religions and philosophies and theologies to understand um, where we're at and how we came to be here and why we're here. But really, when you boil it down, there's only three possible reasons for the existence of the universe. So these are the three we're going to look at. Okay, you ready? The three options are it always was, okay, it created itself, or it was created by someone outside of the universe. In other words, God. So let's look at option one. It always was. Actually, when we look at this option, this is the shortest option. We can rule this out conclusively. Why? Because it's been scientifically disproven. Due to technological advances in telescopes, cameras, um, and all sorts of instruments and sensors that capture varying wavelengths, we can combine that with advanced scientific theories. We can conclude that the universe had a starting point and even to today it continues to expand. Up on the screen you'll see that there is a graphic that basically depicts how they come to a term called the Hubble constant. This Hubble constant, essentially what they do is they measure stars in 19 galaxies and they compare those against a bunch of supernova in other galaxies. And then what they do is they measure the distance, the expansion of space by the stretching of light between those two separate points in time. It's called redshifting, okay? So the Hubble constant is 45.5 miles per second per megaparsec. That means 3.26 million light years. What that all boils down to is if our existing universe stood for another 9.8 billion years, it would have doubled in size um, in that time. So I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the Hubble telescope and all the amazing photos that it shows. So you can see up on the screen there, these are photos that the Hubble sends back on a regular basis showing the universe, galaxy stars, changing states of matter, like literally exploding and collapsing on themselves on a regular basis. So you can see these are the, the pillars of creation behind me there. The one on the left is invisible in regular visible light and the one on the right is using infrared light. So on the basis of, of the above, we can rule this option out and move on. Next, we're gonna look at the universe creating itself. So in simple terms, what that means is the Big Bang Theory suggests that somehow all matter is existing in a singular place and time, and it suddenly exploded forth into what is now seen and known and felt and understood to be our reality. A direct quote from Stephen Hawking says, at this time, the Big Bang, all matter in the universe would have been on top of itself. It would have been infinite in density. It would have been called a singularity. And at a singularity, all the laws of physics break down. Time began at the Big Bang. Events before the Big Bang are simply not defined because there's no way that one could measure what happened. And here's the important statement that he makes. There is no dynamical reason why the motion of bodies in the solar system cannot be extrapolated back in time. Far beyond 4004 BC, the date of creation of the universe, according to the book of Genesis. Thus, that would require the direct intervention of God. By contrast, the Big Bang is a beginning that's required by the dynamical laws that govern the universe. It's therefore intrinsic to the universe, that it's not imposed on from the outside. So 
that's a lot of that's a lot of words. Let me rephrase. The Big Bang breaks every known law of physics and it hinges on all matter in the universe already existing and being in one place and time. Mr. Hawking and physicists understand that the forces of an external agency are required to kick this off, but they don't reveal or offer in their theory who or what this agency is. So this remains a theory where the equation is not balanced. Anyone that knows math knows that what's on the right-hand side of the equal sign must be equal to the left-hand side. In this particular case, you can see on here, everything is on the right-hand side of the equation. There's nothing on the left-hand side of the equals. So here's a few notable quotes from NASA relative to the subject as well. It says that although astronomers understand what the universe was like a few seconds after the Big Bang, no one yet knows what happened at the instant of the Big Bang or what came before. What powered the Big Bang? Where did all the stuff in the universe come from? What was the universe like just before the Big Bang? Scientists have developed a number of new ideas about what might have powered the Big Bang and they're creating bold new space missions to test these ideas. So guys, this is truly the definition of Romans 1.25 where it says that they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they are worshiping the creation, not the creator. So we're gonna leave the theoretical here for just a second. We're gonna focus on the practical, okay? We're gonna do a science test on this particular theory. So if it's true, that nothing created itself once on such a large scale, we would conclude that this should happen on a more regular basis, uh, on a somewhat smaller scale, and it should be observable both by humans as well as by the scientific method. But this has never happened. In the history of every human being that has ever lived, every eye that's ever witnessed every second of everything they've ever done, as well as every science experiment done in every laboratory under controlled conditions, this has never been observed. Nothing has never turned itself into anything. This remains an impossibility. If, if it doesn't exist, how does it obtain the knowledge to create itself? How does it know what it wants to become? And after that, where does it find the matter and the energy to perform that transaction. Do you, see where I'm, do you see where I'm going with that? This is impossible. So we can park this particular option and say that it doesn't satisfactorily explain anything. It doesn't explain where the knowledge, the matter, the energy came from in order for the creation or the um, bringing about of the universe. So we'll look at option three. It was created by something outside of the universe, or we'll call it God. So Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So let's go back and reread Stephen Hawking's quote, and I'm just gonna focus on just a couple of the bolded sections there, where he says these, and he's referencing uh, the forces, these had to be imposed on the universe by some external agency. Far beyond 4004 BC, the date of the creation of the universe, according to the book of Genesis. Thus, it would require the direct intervention of God if the universe began at that date. So, reading that again and comparing that with your Bible, that perfectly matches what Genesis 1.1 says. Before the beginning, there was nothing, right? 
Before the beginning, there was no time. God created it. There was no matter. God created it. There was no energy. God created it. Everything that currently exists was spoken into existence by the Word, the Logos, by Jesus. So this makes sense, but it does require an element of faith that God is the initiator, that he's the designer, that he's the creator. So how do we know that he is all-powerful, that he's eternal, that, that he existed before the beginning, that he's able to have the power to undertake this transaction and create the universe? Well, let's go back and do the same test that we did on option two, and this time compare it with the Word of God. So if it's true that God created everything, we would conclude that this should happen on a smaller scale, on a somewhat regular occurrence, right? And it should be observable. So let's look at some of the evidence. Number one, a man named Jesus claimed to be God, and he performed the following acts of creation. He turned water into wine, he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and two fish. He healed lepers, the blind, paralytics, and so many more. Each one of these miracles referenced is an act of creation. It involves creation of molecules that previously weren't there, the creation of muscles and fibers and nerves or extending or lengthening bones that didn't previously exist. He also healed a man's son from many miles away, saying, go, your son will live. He also raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus, he raised Jairus' daughter, he raised the widow's son. So this is only a small list. Remember what uh, we talked about previously in John 10, where, where Jesus had talked about God being in him, and that's why the Pharisees were going to stone him, right? The Father is in him, the Father's power is in him. So let's look at the second uh, experiment, the Holy Spirit. So this man, Jesus, claimed that when he left, after he was resurrected, that he would give his spirit to those who were his followers. And so what we see in the book of Acts is a documentary on the works of the Holy Spirit as people traveled miraculously through space, so Philip. People were raised from the dead, so Paul raising Eutychus. Handkerchiefs that touched Paul healed sick and ill people and so many more accounts. That's only a small example. So the last one that we're going to look at, you might say, well, yeah, but, you know, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that's kind of like, you know, they were in the past. There's, there's no evidence of that. How do you know you actually, they, they actually existed? Well, so what you can look at if you want a touchy-feely experience is the Bible, right? You can touch that. You can feel that. You can see that with your own eyes. So we would conclude that a God who created the universe and time itself can surely direct the affairs of his creation. That seems logical. He should know what's going to happen to it, or in other words, what's going to happen in the future. So what you have in your Bible is the spoken word of God, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the Bible is in a class of its own when it comes to prophesying the future. At the time that each of the verses in each of the books of the Bible was written, approximately 27% of all scripture was prophecy. And why that's so interesting and unique is that over 80% of those prophecies have been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. You need, to, you need to think about those numbers. 
the, the odds or the random chance of that volume of prophecy being fulfilled is staggering. By contrast, no other religious book or other book written by mankind from the dawn of time until now has one single fulfilled specific prophecy. You need to measure that and weigh that in your mind when you think about the Bible compared to every other book. There is one other major difference between the Bible and every other religious book, and that is the Bible is without error compared to so many other religious books and the significant geographical, scientific errors that, that, that you could get away with thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago before the before the, the, the advent of modern science, but modern science has now proven a lot of those books to be scientifically uh, inaccurate. So that took a bit, of a, a bit of time to go through. So let's just recap option one, the universe created itself. We can dismiss that because we know it's expanding. Option two, the universe um, uh, created itself is dismissed because no theory or equation can explain where the matter and the energy came from and it breaks every law of physics. And last but not least, I, I just want to focus on that term that Stephen Hawking used was dynamical. It, it means linear. Um, that's a way of getting from point A to point B in a straight line that's readily, easily understood. When, when, I, think of, when I think of the God that I serve, he is not linear. Um, you think of how God revealed himself to Moses. Right? The God of the universe decided to be a burning bush in front of Moses. Why? Why, why, why would he do that? That's, that's really odd. That's really interesting. You look at how he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? The, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and how he opened up the Red Sea and allowed them to walk through, allowed the Egyptians to partially get through and then the waters closed up he could have called down lightning or fire or something from heaven and just immediately disposed of them. But, but there is something so unique about how he continues to reveal himself that's not dynamic, that's not linear. You look at maybe the best case of all is Jesus. You look at how the prophecy of Jesus, how he was going to be a, a suffering Messiah. And you look at him ultimately dying on the cross, right? The creator of the universe dying on the cross that's not linear, that's not logical, that's not, that's not anything that you would assume or even think logical, right? But that's because God's ways are not man's ways. He's completely different. He's so much higher than, than us. So we have evaluated um, John's claims that Jesus is the word, that he's God, that he's the architect of creation, and that our Bibles, or at least what we've looked at in John 1, 1 to 3, are, are an accurate translation from the original Greek manuscripts. We've also evaluated probable theories of the universe and our existence and confirmed that the biblical account has the most amount of evidence, the most amount of overwhelming evidence. So now we're gonna tie all these together. You need to understand this. If you can read Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 complementary together, everything else in the Bible is easy. Right? You think about what Genesis 1-1 and what John 1-1 says. God is asserting that he is eternal, so he existed prior to. 
he is asserting that he is the only God. There was nothing. There was nothing before him, nothing before creation. It means that he created everything. He exists in a Godhead. He is omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. So these assertions, when you sit and boil those down to what the core matter is, mean that no relationship outside of the one defined in his word is worth pursuing. It means that no other religion is worth pursuing. It means that astrology or the worship of celestial bodies or um, angels or demons, the worship of having the biggest house, the nicest life, those are all meaningless. It means that any pursuit in your life other than finding out who he is, who you are, and what you were created to do is meaningless and will leave you more empty than where you began. And what that also means is that if Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1 are true, then that also means that Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 is true, which Pastor Jeff went through a few weeks back. It states, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And that means that Romans 3, sorry, Romans eleven thirty six is also true, which says, for of him and through him and to him are all things whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And lastly, that also means that John 3.16 is true as well, and it's true, and it's specifically for you. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So hopefully you're able to see the focus now is that every character, every word contained in all 31,102 verses in all 66 books of the Bible are his love letter to you. And that means that you have a purpose. It means that you have a calling. It means that you have an election. It means that you are not an accident. You and everything that's happened to you are not an accident. You're not a mistake. It means that you are a son or a daughter of the creator of the universe. And lastly, it means that you are who he says you are, not who you think you are, not who anyone in your sphere of influence tells you you are. You are who he says you are, and that makes all the difference in the world. So how do we apply that? Well, first off, if you're new here today, maybe you're on summer vacation, Maybe someone brought you here, or maybe more realistically, they dragged you here, um, and this is resonating with you. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, it's time for a new creation. What do I do next? Well, the fact that you're here at this time and place is no coincidence. And if you want, um, you can have a simple conversation with the creator of the universe. The exact words don't matter quite so much as the intent. It's something goes like this. It says, dear Jesus, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. I repent of my sins. Please forgive me. I invite you into my life and give you control. And it's that easy. That's how you can get the creator of the universe into your heart and have him start leading and directing and guiding the affairs of your life. If you're, if you're here today, you said that, tell someone, don't keep it a secret. Whoever brought you, 
Tell them so that they can get a Bible in your hands and they can walk with you down this journey. What about the rest? What about the rest of us Christians? Well, maybe you're on one side of the spectrum and you're going through a bit of a rough patch. You've come here today, maybe you're disappointed, disillusioned, dissatisfied with life, with your spouse, with your kids. Maybe your, your passions, your desires, they're just not what you thought they'd be. You're not where you want to be. Or maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum where you're going through a mountaintop experience. And the Lord is using you, doing great and mighty things. Let me state the obvious. It is exceedingly sad and even gut-wrenching to see others, including family and close friends, walking through life, struggling to understand and define their worth by God's creation rather than by the Creator Himself. Using things like sex, drugs, experiences, some of us might say it's more sanitized, but things like granite and stainless steel, nice cars, power, wealth, the like. Not far from here, thousands of people are gathered for Shambhala and they're chasing experience. And to those of us Christians that have lived on the other side, we know that experience never satisfies and sin never satisfies either. It always overpromises and underdelivers and always leads to greater and greater bondage. We live in a place here, Nelson, BC, but also in North America and the world in general right now, in a place that is very religious, like Athens is described in Acts 17, or even as sensual and, and sexual as Ephesus was. But God wants to use us. A lost and dying world is right outside our doorway, and we have the cure. And I guess we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we using that? Remember the passages we read today. If those passages are true, then that means that there's no accidents and there's no coincidences. So that also means that you are here at this exact time and place in all of history for a reason. With everything that you have, both the good, the bad, the baggage, the things you think are useful, the things you think are useless. You're here and other people are here as well. Other people that have been called into his kingdom are here. And they're here at this exact same time and place in all of history to have run-ins with you, to experience him through you, to relive your mountaintop experience and your deep valley experiences. God has decided and you have been called to go forth and use everything currently in your hands to love on and pursue those who define their worth by the creation and not the creator. So I want to close today with saying this. We need to use our scars and our memories of our trials and our temptations, our greatest defeats and our sufferings to show the evidence of his redeeming love in our lives. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you today for your house, for this house of worship and for your bride. Lord, we pray that as your bride leaves today and goes out into the world, that you would just use us in powerful ways, that you would use us to advance your kingdom, that your will would be done on earth here as it is in heaven. We ask that your spirit would just ignite us and would give us a boldness. 
and that we would go today just seeking your face and seeking to make connections with those that you put in our paths. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'll close with the uh, benediction. I love Numbers 6, the priestly blessing. Um, says, So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And may you go today, brothers and sisters, walking in the endless forgiveness, mercy, and grace of God, knowing that you are certainly a child of the creator of the universe. And because of that fact, you are loved beyond measure and were created to show that love, his love, to those that you run into today, tomorrow, and every day until he takes you home or comes back for you. Amen. The service is dismissed. There's people that can be up at the front to pray with you if you'd like that over in that corner there. Thanks.